The title for the sermon today is Why Do We Need God's Protection? Why do we need God's protection? You know, we're living in a world that is largely oblivious to the real problems and the threats that are mounting. Our populace, whether it's here in the United States or in Canada or many other areas, especially in the Israelite nations, as well as many of the nations of Europe, the populace has become hedonistic, purely pleasure-seeking, and a, a problem that largely interferes with the exercising of pleasure is what concerns them, not the systematic flaws or issues that are much more serious, whether it be in education, matters of social change, uh, various policies, etc., you know, our security, whether it's here or in other parts of the Western world, is really threatened by a dual effect of rising criminal activity as well as a global explosion in unrest, be that uh, manifesting itself as terrorism or as war or various other sorts of violent expression, largely a version of Islam is being promoted internationally, which is intimidating to many members, even within the Islamic faith, and uh, which is exporting a lot of terror through this one, one group largely funded by Saudi Arabia. And it's a growing movement, even within our own borders. Our religious freedom, at the same time, the most fundamental freedom, is threatened by the passing of laws, not only to protect various gender lifestyles, but other behaviors as well. The decency, the stability, the morality of society is in free fall. And sometimes it's hard to recognize we can get numb to the changes around us. Yet in all of this, most people feel content as long as there's food on the table, and entertainment to be had. And thinking, as long as I have enough money, I'll be okay. It doesn't matter what's happening in the rest of the world. Well, the populace has been lulled into a false sense of security in our land. And they place their trust in money or science or physical and material possessions that one can amass. You know, we live in a world that is actually filled with, and I would say even obsessed with, violence. Whether it's wars to domestic violence, to increasing crime rates, we complain about it sometimes, but we revel in it. How much entertainment on television or in the movie theater is violence-based? Most of it. It's hard to watch something that isn't promoting some type of social advocacy for something the Bible would say is wrong, or else it's promoting entertainment through the expression of violence. The entertainment industry proves that we have a love affair with violence. And this should not come as a surprise, because whether it is Paul or Jesus Christ, both refer to the Satan, to Satan as the actual ruler of this world. 
And they also explain that he is of a violent and deceptive nature. If you turn over to Ezekiel chapter 28, Ezekiel the 28th chapter, we see a very interesting story here. I'll just read a very small part of it. But in verse 14 of Ezekiel 28, God caused the prophet to write, referring to one known as Lucifer, who became Satan. He said, you were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God, in the midst of God's government. And you walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created. He was a created being. Until iniquity was found in you. And by the abundance of your trading, and that word can be interpreted politicking, you became filled with violence within. And you sinned. And I cast you out as a profane thing from the mountain of God. And he goes on. Satan is a violent being. When whatever caused his rebellion against God the Father and Jesus Christ, his makers, whatever caused that rebellion caused him to become violent. And we know from the history of the Bible there was a war, and that war destroyed the earth completely and utterly. And it had to be rebuilt as described in Genesis. Many in the world, however, do not accept the fact that there is a spirit world that is active in directing the affairs of nations, business, religion, social entertainment, and the whole nature and structure of society. And the net effect of that leadership that Satan has been expressing on this earth is that societies are moving away from anything that resembles a belief or trust in God. And secondly, the people called of God who follow his ways and teach the truth are subject to his wrath. And one of the most difficult things for modern man to understand or believe that in our world today, is that we need protection from spiritual forces. You know, we've just come through a season where people celebrated something called Halloween. You know, really, if you hadn't seen this before and had not been raised in a society that accepts this and promotes it, you would be shocked. I mean... It's ugly by its very nature. Everything about it is macabre. And people seem to overlook that ugliness because it's been a cultural thing that they have been engineered to accept and to participate in. But God, throughout the Bible, states and repeats his promises of protection to those who follow him. And when I talk about protection, yes, there is physical protection that he does provide. But there's also the spiritual protection that is even much more important. You know, it's hard for man to accept this. Today, again, most people refuse to accept even the presence of a spirit world. But suffice it to say, the whole world and virtually all religions are deceived on this point. You know, you've often turned to, uh, you can just reference it, Revelation 12.9. Most of you know it by memory that Satan is called the being who has deceived the whole world. Don't just read over that statement. 
understand it for the depth of ignorance that he has created on this earth when it comes to reality, the reality of God. In Ephesians 2, he's called the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who works in the sons of disobedience. He causes moods. He causes us sometimes to think that which we ought not. And James tells us, when, that, when you find that stuff happening, get your mind on something else. Fight back. Resist it. And in John 14, verse 30, he's called the ruler of this world by Jesus Christ. And he's going to continue in that position. He is the ruler of this world, and we forget that at our peril. And we'll continue to be in that position until Jesus Christ returns to this world with the resurrected church with him at the start of the millennium and puts him out of business. But the Bible, however, the inspired word of God, does have a message of protection for God's people. And that message supposes the need for it. Not just of the mind, which is very important, but also there is an element of physical protection that we need to rely on and need to pray about. The Church of God has a number of tasks. One of those tasks is to preach the gospel to the world. That is not to be underrated. And if you are the Church of God, that's what you will be doing. If you're not doing it, you don't deserve the title. And secondly, we are to warn the descendants of modern Israel. That is a job the church has to do because we are commanded to do it. And the Bible contains a message to us in God's church that should help us be inspired to know the situations we are in, the risks, the dangers, but also the rewards of doing the right thing. And it inspires us to ask and seek God's protection from the things that are soon to occur. And I'd like to approach this in three points. You know, first of all, what is the warning to Israel? Because that's where we happen to live at the moment. And secondly, who are the recipients of God's promised protection? And, what are the, and thirdly, what are the criteria for that protection? You know, in all of this, we should all reflect on our own lives and think of times where God may have intervened to help us. I remember an incident when I was just a little gaffer. Sorry, I grew up in Nova Scotia. That's a common term. <laughs> little fellow. And um, I was, uh, I think, about five years old. And my mother dropped me off at school. And I had to run across the street in Halifax, where I grew up, and um, go onto the schoolyard. And, of course, a five-year-old can be a little bit, uh, how, is, how would I say, oblivious to the goings-on of the rest of the planet. And so I got out of the car, went behind the car, and to my mother's horror, I just charged across the road because I could see the target, the schoolyard. That's where, where I was going. And I remember being almost across the road, and for some reason I looked to my right, and there was a city bus. It was going at a pretty good clip, and it was about five feet away from me. And I, I remember the face of the bus driver. And the next, thing, the next thing I remember, I was lying on my back on the grass beside the curb 
by the back door of the bus. Now, I don't know what happened in there, but if the laws of physics were being applied at that moment, I should have been a hood ornament on the bus. But many times God intervenes, and I'm sure you can think of many times God's intervened for you. We are not without that protection. Hebrews 1 tells us angels are ministering spirits sent to minister to those God is calling. Turn for a moment to Ezekiel chapter 3. This is an important part of our role, but we sometimes need to be reminded, what do we need protection from? This is a message God gave through a prophet, Ezekiel, fascinating man. In verse 17, God says to him, Son of man, I've made you a watchman to the house of Israel. Therefore, hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. That expression, give them warning from me, is in the imperative case. That means it's an order. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, that same wicked man shall die as iniquity, but his blood I'll require at your hand. It will become our fault if we don't carry the message. Yet if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he will die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your life. That's a basic principle that God uses. When he calls us to work for him, he has very high levels of expectation of what we will achieve. And sometimes we set the expectation levels too low. He sets them very high because he knows you can do it. In verse 20, he says, again, when a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because you did not give him warning, he shall die in his sin, and his righteousness, which he has done, shall not be remembered but his blood I'll require at your hand. When we're called, we have a high level of responsibility. You know, Ezekiel 3 tells us of this commission given to Ezekiel, the watchman of Israel. And that same commission is inherited by the church of God today. So what is the warning that we're supposed to give to our peoples who are oblivious that danger is around the corner? There are three chapters of Ezekiel in which a dreadful warning is given. And we know it's for the end time as the state of Israel had already gone into captivity to the Assyrians when this was written. And this, therefore, is a prophecy for our time. And Ezekiel was a priest. He was a son of the family of Zadok. That's the family from which the priests came. The high priests all came from that. And he was one of the leaders of the captive Jewish community that was living near Babylon following the first deportation of the Jews by Nebuchadnezzar. Israel, the northern ten tribes, had gone into captivity over a century earlier. And they had already been organized around the shores of the Black and Caspian Seas. And some of them had, of course, moved to other areas. But they became known as Scythians or 
a portion of the empire of Parthia or whatever before their long migration into northwestern Europe. But the prophecy, as we see, is directed at Israel as much as Judah. And therefore, it proves it is a prophecy for a later date than the days in which Ezekiel was living. In chapter 5, we learn that Ezekiel was told to do something. Actually, a lot of the prophets were told to do something strange. But there was deep meaning in this action. If you look at Ezekiel 5, verse 1, it says, And you, son of man, take a sharp sword. Take it as a barber's razor and pass it over your head and your beard. And then take the balances to weigh and divide the hair. And you shall burn with fire one third in the midst of the city. So everyone can see you doing it in the midst of the city. And when the days of the siege are finished, then you shall take one third and strike around it with the sword. And one third you'll scatter to the wind and I'll draw a sword out after them. So even those going into captivity would have persecution. And you shall take a small number of them and bind them in the edge of your garment. And then take some of them again and throw them into the midst of the fire and burn them in the fire. For from there a fire will go out into all the house of Israel, not Judah. And thus says the Lord God, This is Jerusalem. I have set her in the midst of the nations and the countries around her. She has rebelled against my judgments by doing wickedness much more than the nations and against my statutes more than the countries that are around her. For they have refused my judgments and have not walked in my statutes, even though they knew them and they were reminded. Therefore, says the Lord God, because you have multiplied disobedience more than the nations that are around you, and have not walked in my statutes, nor kept my judgments, nor uh, even done according to the judgment of the nations. In other words, Israel has become worse than the nations around us. You know, Israelites, I guess, over the years, Canadians, Americans, uh, Australians, etc., and others, have always been known for their work ethic. The work ethic that came out of the 1800s, the Victorian period, uh, was a descriptor of our peoples. I was uh, had opportunity. I was asked to speak to a, a group of uh, university representatives in the city of Regina, in Saskatchewan, last week uh, by the Chinese government, and uh, I, I gave a presentation. On the way back from the airport, uh, we go, actually we had a flight back to Calgary. I was going back to Edmonton, and some of the Chinese representatives were going on to Eastern Canada. And uh, between, it was kind of late, but between Regina and Calgary, I had to edit uh, some writing I was doing for something else. And uh, when I got off the plane, one of the uh, Chinese representatives came up to me and they said, did you sleep on the plane? I said, no, I had to uh, edit a paper. And they said, oh, you don't work like a Canadian then. And... That shook me a little bit because, you see, other peoples are noticing we're changing. Other peoples notice that. Other nations notice that there's something different about the Anglo-Saxons now than used to be. We might not notice it ourselves, but it is observed. And 
it's something that we need to be cautious of that doesn't infect ourselves. But from these scriptures, we see that God takes law-breaking very seriously. And today, people claiming to represent the God of the Bible, many of them say God's law is done away. But as we have seen in many, many sermons in the past, that the New Testament enforces God's law every bit as much as the Old Testament. And it enforces it into the future beyond the return of Christ. Law-breaking erodes our protective wall. Notice verse 8 of Ezekiel 5. It says, Therefore, says the Lord God, indeed, I am even I am against you and will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. And I will do among you what I have never done and the like of which I will never do again because of all your abominations. We do need protection from what is coming. How bad is it going to get? Verse 10. We can't imagine this in our countries. It says, therefore, fathers shall eat their sons in your midst, and sons eat their fathers. And I will execute judgments among you, and all of you who remain I will scatter to the winds. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord God, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things and with all your abominations, therefore I will diminish you. My eye will not spare, nor will I have any pity. And God begins to explain the meanings of those symbols. And he goes on in verse 12 and explains here that one-third of you shall die by pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst. That was the first third. When is the last time Israelitish people have really known famine? Do you read about it in your histories? Perhaps... The Irish had a potato famine in the 1800s. And prior to that, there were periods of periodic famine back in the 13 and 1200s in England. That's 800 years ago. We haven't experienced very much in the line of famine. And we've been filled with plenty for so long because of God's blessing. It's hard for people to believe. But that's what it says. And that's what will happen. And he goes on, and one third shall fall by the sword around you. The Israelitish peoples uh, today have concentrated roughly 70% of the world's military capacity. That's just fact. According to the Institute of Strategic Studies. How will that happen? Well, it's going to happen because we trust in our military, we trust in our wealth, we trust in our, uh, we believe in our abilities. But we do not trust in God. And neither do we rely on him. Neither do we obey. And he says, and I will scatter another third to the winds and I'll draw a sword out after them. Thus my anger will be spent and I will cause my fury to rest upon them and I will be avenged that they may know that I, the Lord, have spoken it in my zeal when I have spent my fury on them. 
Now, God will not punish Israel unless they have been clearly warned. Our people today are a bit oblivious. As they were in the days of Isaiah and Jeremiah. But it's interesting that the ancient prophets were sent to warn a people before destruction. Some of them were high-ranking people. Ezekiel was a very high-ranking man. He was a leading prince. Daniel was a, was a prince. He was of the royal family. So was Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a priest of uh, uh, high rank. When God wants a job done, he will make sure the people are there to do the job. But he wants people who will do the job. And he has called us. So the answer really to our needs is first to obey God and do his will and put our heart into it. We've seen examples of how bad it will get. I don't think there's much point in in, in reading more about that. It's a horrific time coming. But following famine, he, he talks about in verse 17, you know, Pestilence, blood, famine. They say wild beasts among you. The actual term there in verse 17 is fanged beasts. So whatever fanged beast means, I mean, cats have fangs, I guess. They can give you a good nip. So can a dog. But snakes have fangs and even spiders have fangs. So whether it means large furry wild beasts or wild beasts that are toxic and slithering doesn't matter. It's a prophecy. And following famine always comes disease and crime. You know, this will occur. In chapter 6 of Ezekiel, God begins to describe more detail of what will happen. More clarity as to the cause of the people's dilemma. So Ezekiel chapter 6, verse 1 He says, now the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, set your face toward the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them and say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus the Lord God says to the mountains and the hills and the ravines, in other words, to the whole nation, indeed, I, even I will bring a sword against you and destroy your high places. Then your altars shall be desolate. You know, that which you trusted in, that which you put before God. First commandment is put nothing before God. And so the altars here, the idols, are that which we put in front of God. They'll be desolate. Your incense altars broken down, etc. Verse 5, and I will lay the corpses of the children of Israel before their idols, before that which you trusted. And I'll scatter your bones beside those altars. And all your dwelling places, the cities, will be laid waste. And the high places shall be desolate, so your altars may be laid waste and made desolate, and your altars may be broken and made to cease, and your altars may be cut down, and your works may be abolished, and the slain will fall in your midst, and you will know that I am the Lord. Now, the things in which we trust, false religion, but also other material things that become gods to us, um, that's, that's important to, rem- to identify. Is there something before God? He wants us to check that all the time. You know, so many argue, even our former association went astray on the same principle 
where they put something else before the law of God. Isaiah 8.20 says, To the law and the testimony, if they speak not according to that word, there is no light in them. They're in utter darkness. They have no knowledge of truth at all. None. Zero. They cannot give you spiritual leadership unless they follow the law of God, your creator. They are woefully ignorant. And we need to remember that before we look in other places for truth. You know, the nation will be devastated, but it will not be totally wiped out. Some will survive. I will leave a remnant so that you may have some who escape the sword among the nations when you are scattered through their countries as slaves. And then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive. Notice this. Because I was crushed by their adulterous heart which has departed from me. You know, if a married couple are together and one couple, one partner betrays the other, then the betrayed partner feels crushed, hurt, sick at heart. Totally betrayed. That's the same language God uses here. Because I was crushed, hurt deeply by their um, departure from the truth. And by their eyes which played the harlot after their idols. And they will loathe themselves for the evils which they have committed. They can only do that if they know the truth. They can only contrast what they've been to what they should have been if the truth is known. God was deeply hurt by that disloyalty, just as he's deeply hurt by our disloyalty if we become disloyal. The same way, he's invested a great deal in each and every one of us. But they have to be taught. Because it says in verse 10, and they shall, and then they shall know I am the Lord. And I have not said in vain I would bring calamity. But how would they know that if they haven't been told? And that's the job that we are given. So, thus the immediate future of Israel is not a pleasant one. But it is one that has been brought on by a rebellion against the law of God and a rejection of God as our ruler. Even um, yes, even uh, two days ago, I guess, in the legislature of the province of Alberta where I live, the Minister of Education brought a piece of legislation before the, the, uh, the uh, government body in which he is now proposing to pass a law which will prevent parents from being told if their child at school takes part in any counseling or any gender counseling or gender identity counseling, I guess is the, the term. In other words, parents would be denied access to what is going on with their child in school. Now, even in Canada, that is a constitutional violation and will likely result in a, in a court challenge. But that's a rebellion against common sense and decency and morality in every way, shape, and form. And if I were to stand up 
as a speaker, a guest of the legislature, and say, you know, you're departing from the way of God, I would be laughed right out of the chamber. They would say, well, who let that old archaic character in here? That's the way the nation's thinking. But it doesn't know the truth. But it has to. There must be a warning. God holds us accountable to give that warning. Israel, the modern nations of, you know, Britain, Canada, the United States, New Zealand, Australia, etc., and Northwestern Europe and others, will receive a terrible fate. We understand from Amos chapter 5, verse 3 and 4, that the survival rate of Israelites into the millennium period is approximately 1 out of 10. Tells us in Amos 5, chapter 3, the city goes out by a thousand, shall have a hundred left. And this town that goes out with a hundred shall have ten left. Ninety percent casualty rate. And those ten percent are probably the ones God knows he can work with in the millennium. So changed will our society be at that time. But before that, so changed will our society be from what it is now. Can you understand, for example, in verse 14 of um, verse 14 here of Ezekiel uh, chapter 7, Ezekiel 7, verse 14. This is what will happen in this country and Canada and Britain. They have blown the trumpet and made everyone ready, but no one goes to battle. You know, when the Argentine government invaded the Falkland Islands, um, there was a big change in the attitude of Britain. First of all, they were pretty laid back at the time. But the idea that, wait a minute, I say, <laughs> you know, someone's invading our islands here. That's uh, not cricket. So we'll have to do something about that. So they mobilized the force, went down, had a war and took them back. They listened to the sound of the trumpet. When 9-11 happened, we know that the response was. There was no resistance to that response. The trumpet was sounded. There was a big response. The Bible saying that in Israel, they have blown my trumpet and made everyone ready, but no one goes to battle. For my wrath is on their multitude. The sword is outside and pestilence and famine within. And whoever is in the field will die by the sword. Whoever is in the city, the famine with pestilence will devour them. Verse 17, every hand will be feeble. Every knee is weak as water. The arrogance of Israel is going to be brought back on their head. But they still have to be warned. You know, it's interesting that they will still be in possession of their wealth for a little while, but they will eventually realize that wealth is of no value. And what is the value, truly what is the value, are the blessings that God has given to Israel. What is the biggest blessing he's given to our peoples? The biggest blessing that the, especially the nations that descend from Joseph have in this world and to some extent Reuben, France, is the capacity to produce food 
That is by far the most valuable gift a country can have. Food and water. Food and water are power. Empires are built on food and water. And we've had huge food producing capacity. The United States, by and of itself, has the tremendous blessing of being able to produce massive amounts of food. Massive amounts. Canada has about one-third of all the fresh water on earth. That's a blessing. That's value. Gold doesn't have much value if that's all you've got. You know, in verse 23, he goes on and he says here, make a chain for the land is filled with crimes of blood. That ring a bell? And the cities are full of violence. Therefore, I will bring the worst of the Gentiles and they will possess their houses and I will cause the pomp of the strong to cease and their holy places shall be defiled. Destruction comes and they will seek peace, but there will be none. They won't be able to negotiate. Disaster upon disaster, rumor upon rumor, they will seek a vision from a prophet. Finally, they'll say, hey, we better get some advice here. But the law will perish from the priest and the counsel from the elders. The true ministers of God will not be available to them at that point. And the king will mourn and the prince will be clothed in desolation, etc. It ends with, they shall know that I am the Lord. There is a root cause. My favorite expression of Mr. Herbert Armstrong is when he said, there is a cause for every effect. That is a profound piece of wisdom. And in chapter 8, God goes on to show Ezekiel the root cause of the troubles in Israel. And indeed, this scripture links very well to the practices of our modern nations today. In verse 1 there, it says, It came to pass on the sixth year and the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, I sat in the house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, and the hand of the Lord fell, God fell upon me there. And he has a vision. Then I looked, and there was a likeness and the appearance of fire, like the appearance of fire from... Uh, of his waist downward, fire, and from his waist upward, the appearance of brightness and the color of amber. So he sees this, um, this great being. And God knows how to get attention, by the way. He says in verse 3, He stretched out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my hair, grabbed him by the hair, and the Spirit lifted me up between the earth and the heaven. So at 5,000 feet above the ground, he said, have I got your attention? And brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the door of the north gate of the inner court, where the seat of the image of jealousy was, that provokes to jealousy. Now, that's an interesting expression. The image of jealousy here can refer to that which has removed Israel from God, and therefore that which made God jealous. And in that, his image has led those who God loved and cared for to turn away from him. In this case, it was very likely an image of a false god, whether Baal or Tammuz, counterfeit Christs, 
our day it can refer to many false religions or the blind trust in science and modern philosophy. And furthermore, he talks, you can go down in that chapter, in verse 14, the weeping of Tamas, which is a practice that long predated the Easter celebration as referred to uh, as, as a Christian celebration, which of course it isn't. But the, uh, the death and resurrection of Thomas was an ancient uh, belief that, uh, of course, pagans used to uh, they just replace the name of Thomas with Christ. And you had your Easter celebration. But they were keeping pagan holy days. Um, verse 16 talks about an Easter sunrise service. I remember as a boy going to those. I didn't think it was wrong. Neither do people today. But it's that which takes you away from truth. Israel has not only embraced beliefs of false Christianity, basically a continuation of the religious practice condemned in the Bible millennia ago, but now we see people going after religions of the East or animistic ideas or various uh, spirituality practices, as they call them. And add to this the increasing institutionalization and acceptance of what is now called, I guess in the broadest sense, gender fluidity, whatever that means. You're not sure what you are, I guess. Um, which is an out, a practice outrightly condemned in the strongest terms in the Old and New Testaments. But these are the reasons why our nation is going to experience captivity. It doesn't want to obey God. It really doesn't want to. But they still must have a warning. And we have to give that to them. But the question is, who then is protected? Well, what is the criteria for protection anyway? Well, we need to let the Bible answer those questions. What are the criteria? And who is protected? You know, David begins to answer that question in a very powerful psalm that I think Thomas, Jeffer Thomas Jefferson once referred to as the definition of a gentleman. It's over in Psalm 15. One we should read frequently because it's short. It has a great deal of truth in it. Notice what God is saying. First of all, the question is asked of God. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? In other words, who's going to be in your kingdom? Who may dwell in your holy hill? And the answer comes back. He who walks uprightly and works righteousness. We know righteousness refers to the law of God, the commandments of God. And who speaks truth in his heart. Honesty is extremely highly valued by God. And dishonesty, we must get the dishonest tendencies out of us. Because God doesn't tolerate it at all. He who speaks truth in his heart. He who does not backbite with his tongue. Nor does evil to a neighbor. Nor take up a reproach against his friend. God values loyalty to him and to others. Whether it's our spouse, our family, our friends, the brethren who are called into the spiritual family of which we are a part, God demands loyalty. In whose eyes 
A vile person is despised. Now, we don't despise the individual, but we despise sometimes what they are. In other words, what choices they're making. We know that every human being out there, from the derelict on the street to the emperor in some throne room, is a potential member of the God family. And they will all have their opportunity. Ours is now, however. But we must not acknowledge or tolerate that which separates us from God. So the practice of a vile person is despised, but he who honors, but honors those who fear the Lord. Give respect to those who are struggling to obey God. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. In other words, you're consistent and you're dependable and you keep your word. He who does not put his money out at usury nor take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Mr. Ames often talks about claiming God's promises. A critical thing. And that's a promise. In other words, we need to show godly integrity. Living according to the tenets of God's law. Not just physically, but in the attitude we display. Can result in blessing and protection. But it takes faith. And faith is not just belief. Faith is belief that leads to action. There's another very clear prophecy of protection, actually that quotes Psalm 15 to some degree, and that's Isaiah 33. Isaiah, the 33rd chapter, and verse 15. It says, he who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, in other words, you're honest, who despises the gain of oppression, you don't oppress people, who gestures with his hands, refusing bribes, and stops his ears from the hearing of bloodshed. Do we enjoy those movies and programs on television which show people getting blown away in 15 different ways per minute? If we do, we've got a problem. Because you put that into your mind enough, and it starts to shape you. It's not righteous despises the gain of oppressions, who gestures with his hands, refusing bribes, stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed, and shuts his eyes from seeing evil. Why do we watch evil? You become what you put in your mind. Again, the commandments, showing kindness, generosity, is a big thing with God. And turning away from listening to and seeing that which is associated with evil. Psalm 33, Psalm 33 and verse 16. No king is saved by the multitude of an army. Doesn't matter how big your army is. If God takes his protective hand away, you're not fighting man, you're fighting Satan. He's the ruler of the world. No physical protection can guard you. Just because you're packing a gun, isn't that, is that going to protect you? We think that, you know, Smith and Wesson is going to be our protector. We're dreaming in technicolor. 
We're looking at the physical to save us in a war against a spiritual power. A horse is vain hope for safety, neither shall it deliver by its great strength. But notice, behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him or who who obey him, on those who hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death and, notice, to keep them alive in famine. You know, all the preparation in the world is not going to keep you alive in famine. One denomination uh, asked people to store at least a year's food or something away all the time. Fine. If we think that's going to save us, we have a problem. These survivalists to go up in the mountains and make little redoubts for themselves. Um, You know, they have no idea what they're fighting against. Verse 20. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. That's protection. And that's who gets it. Those who rely on him and obey him. Psalm 37. Psalm 37. And verse 17. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. It's a promise. The Lord knows the day of the upright, and their inheritance shall be forever. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time, and in the days of famine they will be satisfied. It's another promise. You know, Solomon said, I've been young and I've been old, but I've never seen the righteous begging bread. The wicked shall perish, verse 20, and the enemies of the Lord, like the splendor of the meadows, shall vanish. Into smoke they will vanish away. The wicked borrows and does not repay, but the righteous shows mercy and gives. That's a big criteria for God. Are you merciful? Are you a generous person? God is generous. That's a key part of his character. He wants, he demands that be in our character, along with honesty Integrity, etc., etc. Verse 22, for those blessed by him shall inherit the earth. Those cursed shall be cut off. Note the word as well given to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 66. Isaiah the 66 chapter and verse 2. Isaiah 66 and verse 2, it says, For all these things my hand has made, and all these things exist, says the Lord. You know, we've been called, not by Jesus Christ, as Christ himself said, no one comes to me unless the Father call him. You're here because God the Father fingered you out of the population on this planet. He saw something in you he wanted, and he opened your mind, which is a miracle far greater than the parting of the Red Sea, opening a mind to understand truth. That's only God can do that. And he's done that for you. And he is the creator of the universe. Who can snap his fingers and a galaxy pops into place. He's quite able to take care of us. For all these things my hand has made. And all these things exist as the Lord. But on this one will I look. 
one uh, on him who is poor or humble and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. That's a promise. But he has some criteria. Psalm 91. I think you're all familiar with that as a psalm of protection written by Moses. Moses knew a lot about protection. Um, he was in the midst of some of the most dramatic events in the history of the world. And Moses writes in Psalm 91, it says, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty, under his protection. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God in him I will trust. In other words, the person turns to God and trusts in him, which means he's probably going to obey him. Because if we don't obey him, we really don't trust in him. If we don't obey him, we have no faith in his word. If we don't believe him enough to obey him, that's faithlessness. Verse 3. Surely he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. Are you going to protect yourself from the diseases that are going to be coming on this world, in this land? He shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will take refuge. His truth, notice, his truth shall be your shield and buckler. If that's the case, verse 5, you shall not be afraid of the terror by night, or the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that walks in the darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked. You have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the most high, your dwelling place. Therefore, no evil shall befall you, nor any plague come near your dwelling. For he'll give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. That's what we need. We need spiritual protection for physical things and spiritual things. There is no other safety on this planet ruled by an enemy. And you are a fifth column in his territory. And he doesn't like it very much. And if it wasn't for God's protection, we'd all be snuffed out by now. But we have that. And we will continue to have that as long as we put him first and his work first. This promise is clear. It's tied directly to the obedience to God and faithfulness to building God's character. Now, clearly, then, those who are not protected are those who refuse to obey God. And there will come a time, of course, when the message of truth will be given in a powerful way. We don't know exactly how that will be, but we have to put all our efforts into doing all we can. And the work of which we are a part is one in which we can take joy in laboring in. Because it is the right thing to do. Be anxious to pray to God, to support the work, to call additional workers into the church, to joyously pay our tithes and give our offerings and ask God to bless and multiply them. 
like he did the fish and the bread so long ago. And represent God's church as ambassadors of Jesus Christ properly at home, at work, and all places. Jesus Christ instructs us to pray to be protected at the end time. Luke 21. You're all familiar with this, I'm sure. Luke 21, verse 36. Luke 21 and verse 36. He says, watch therefore and pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. There's a Many clear scriptures in the New Testament, as well as several in the Old Testament, that tell us at the very end of this age, a certain number of members of God's church will be protected. Now, it's true. Some people say, well, God can protect you anywhere. Of course he could. Who would argue against that? But he also (laughs) says, well, don't take my word for it, Revelation 12. Revelation chapter 12, verse 14. But the woman, the church, was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time, times, and half a time, three and a half years from the face of the serpent. Talks about a place. Of course God could protect you anywhere. But it also talks about a location where some people are gathered together. For the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood or sent an army after her that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood. God swallowed up the army. Just like Moses talked about in Psalm 91. But Psalm 15 gave us the criteria for that protection. You know, there are many other scriptures where Isaiah 26 uh, talks about it a bit where there's a place where God will guard some of his people, even a scripture which many recognize as a possible indicator of a location is talked about in the Bible for three and a half years. That's Isaiah 16, actually, Isaiah 16. And I don't pretend to know any specific location. People have speculated, and that's all it is. It's a speculation. Uh, verse 1, it says, Send the lamb to the ruler of the land from Salah to the wilderness, to the mount of the daughter of Zion, for it shall be as a wandering bird thrown out of his nest. So the daughters of Moab at the fords of, uh, so shall be the daughters uh, of Moab at the fords of Arnon. Take counsel, execute judgment, make your shadow like the night in the middle of the day. Hide the outcasts, do not betray him who escapes. Let my outcasts dwell with you, O Moab, and be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler. For the extortioner is at an end, devastation ceases, etc. So people have drawn possible connections between that, using the word Salah, which is a reference to Petra, and others as possibly a location for a protection of God's people. But nonetheless, there is a place where God says he will take some people with to a place where they are protected from the worst of the plagues that are going to fall upon the earth. But protection, whatever it is, is granted to him who is obedient and trusting and submissive to all of God's requirements. 
We know from several places in the scriptures, it tells us that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And the fear of God is essential to those who are protected. And those who fear God more than man. You know, in Proverbs 14, verse 26, it says, uh, in the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence and his children will have a place of refuge. It's a promise. God, again, could protect us anywhere, but he does talk about this in an end time context. You know, there may be some who are very faithful who God does not protect physically, but does protect spiritually. It may well be that God says to someone, I want you out there in the world, in the dangerous area, to do a job for me. He sent prophets to do that. You know, Isaiah had a rough end. He was out there obeying God. Other prophets may have been protected. Hebrews 11 says many were killed. They were faithful people. But when God has a job to do, he sends you to do it. Regardless of the end result, you obey him and get the job done. Because whatever happens to man, God can resurrect you into a, as a spirit being like him in the kingdom of God. But we need to remember that God is more faithful than man. And if we place our faith and trust in God, he will keep his promises. You know, for example, over in Psalm 9, Psalm the ninth chapter, ninth Psalm. Psalm 9 and verse 8. Psalm 9 and verse 8. It says here, uh, He shall judge the world in righteousness, and he shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. And notice verse 10. And those who know your name will put their trust in you, for you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. If a person seeks God sincerely with all their heart, he never turns them away. Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews, the 13th chapter, and verse 5, says here, let your conduct be without covetousness. Covetousness, sort of almost a summation of breaking all the commandments. Let your conducts be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. Why? Because if we have God's calling and his promise, that should be sufficient to become the grandeur of what we're offered. Sometimes we, we forget that. We don't really fully realize what he's saying to us. That we will be like him. If you want a picture of what you are look, will look like in the resurrection, read Revelation 1, because it says, as Jesus Christ is, we will look like that. We will have a body like him. That's what's being offered. And the opportunity to do so much forever. But he says, let your conduct be without covetousness and be content with that which you have. For he himself has said, and this is a promise, again, that we need to claim, 
I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Even if God allows us to be martyred, if we are faithful, that's okay. You know, he fully expects faithfulness in any situation. He has high expectations. And he will resurrect us to eternal life. But for others, he will protect physically. But the main protection is spiritual. To protect our minds from deception. That's the main thing we need to pray for. Romans 8.31, of course, you all know, if God is for us, who can be against us? You know, there's coming a time in conclusion in which we may already have entered when only God can be counted on for safety. And everything we have come to trust will fail except for our faith in God. There's coming a time when this world will be ravaged by famine, disease, crime, and war. And our nations will be attacked, its cities devastated, its people taken into a cruel slavery. And all this preceded by the preaching of the church of God, for which some of us may well be persecuted. However, over and over again, we see the promises of God's protection from famine, disease, and war given to those in his church at that time who meet the criteria discussed earlier. The promise is sure. And the one route to receiving the protection is obedience to him. You know, in closing, we can turn to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. A prophecy of God is like a promise of God. It will not fail. And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia, write, These things, says he who is holy, and who is true, completely honest. He who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. In other words, as long as you have the will to do that work, and you are obedient to God, he will open that door. He will not shut it if there's a will. But if the will fails... Not much he can do. So we must be very careful that will never fails. I know your works. See, I set before you an open door and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength and have kept my word and have not denied my name. We're not embarrassed about what we believe. We're not embarrassed about the Bible, about what it says from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation. We believe it is true and accurate in every word. Indeed, I will make those who are the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet. You only worship a God being. A member of the family of God. And to know that I have loved you. And why? Because, verse 10, you have kept my commandment to persevere. Persevere is an interesting word. 
It means moving ahead to your target, whether conditions are good or bad. It means pressing on regardless of the circumstances, regardless of fear. We all feel fear. That's normal. But you press on regardless of fear. And I will keep you from the hour of trial, which comes upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, this treasure that you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. Excuse me. And I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. Let's take the opportunity that we have now to draw closer to God every day, to examine where we may be falling short, to be pleasing to God and remembering God does not curse obedience to him. He blesses it and will extend his protection to those who show integrity and are striving zealously to do his work. Zeal is a very important part. God is very zealous about what he's doing. He's zealous about the future. He's zealous for you. He wants you to be zealous for him and to be good examples and ambassadors for his kingdom. Protection can be physical, as scripture indicates, and promises. But it's also more important that we have that spiritual protection Guard our minds and pray always that we can become worthy in God's eyes to do the work and to build the character that God needs and wants and leave the rest to our loving father and our elder brother. And they will keep their promises. 